So when you have critical social justice that's sort of rearing its head, what it's doing is taking any bright spot of hope, even if it's a teeny little spot in a sea of darkness, it just smashes out that light. It turns it off each and every time. It seeks to turn off our light. You know, the light that we have as humans or the light that's in our hearts, it seeks to just turn it off. You add that component to it, and I don't understand how it becomes even tenable for anybody to be a therapist or to do the work or to go to therapy. So when I hear about an ideology that destroys hope, destroys it, I cannot look at that and say that that's pro-human. To me, it's demonic. It is a spiritual war you know, that we're at, and that right there seeks to turn off light. Those things to me are not pro-human, they're anti-human. And that's where I cannot align with them. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Before we begin today's episode, I have a couple of exciting announcements I don't want you to miss out on. Number one, the film I am proud to be a part of, Affirmation Generation, is now available. This film does an incredible job of exposing the gender crisis, and we want it to reach therapists, doctors, parents, teachers, politicians, and anyone in a position to care. You can stream our early access edition of this film online anytime, as well as watch the trailer, learn more, or donate to the film at affirmationgenerationmovie.com. Number two, I've started a new private online community for listeners of this podcast. You can find it at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. This new offering fulfills several needs. Over the past year, my reach has grown exponentially, and while it delights me to know that my podcast is now in the top 2.5% globally, the matching rise in the amount of emails and DMs I receive has been overwhelming. It's simply too much for one person to handle, and while I care about my listeners, staring at a screen piping words at them for free feeds neither my stomach nor my soul. I had to create some kind of filter to make my engagement feel sustainable and nourishing to me. And fortunately, this is exactly what Locals was designed to do for independent content creators like myself. When you join my Locals community as a supporting member for $8 a month, you get to submit questions that I will answer in members-only Q&A live streams. I'm also considering offering behind-the-scenes early access to new podcasts as they're being recorded. Plus, of course, you get to meet light-minded people who share your interests in an online environment that's free of ads, bullies, and trolls. With Locals, you also get to choose how much you reveal about yourself on your profile so you can be undercover or out in the open. And you get to select whether your posts in my community are visible to anyone who drops by or only to other committed members. If you'd like to support me at a higher level, you can become a premium member for $24 a month, which allows you to privately message me, and I will prioritize responding to premium members' direct messages. I think this is a great solution that is designed to meet everyone's needs. 
Although we are just getting started and this community is currently small and new, we've already got some great people on board, including thoughtful therapists, concerned parents, and free-thinking, politically homeless people. Please come along and check out my growing community at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. You can get your first month free with promo code GRANDFATHER. Make the most of your trial membership by asking a question in the latest Q&A thread, and I will provide a live-streamed answer you can join me for or watch later. What have you got to lose? All right, now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is Christine Seifen. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, as well as a member of Critical Therapy Antidote, which some listeners may be familiar with. I've definitely done other interviews with people who've had some level of involvement in Critical Therapy Antidote, like Leslie Elliott, Andrew Hartz, and James Esses, for example, if you've listened to those episodes before. Um, she's also been involved in the past in the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And this is an exciting time for Christine and the whole Critical Therapy Antidote team because they are just launching their podcast and book. Um, so the Critical Therapy Antidote podcast and the book Cynical Therapies, Perspectives on the Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice, uh, both will be out by the time this episode airs, even though they're not quite out at the time of the recording. Um, so Christine is a co-host of the Critical Therapy Antidote podcast and authored one of the chapters in the book. I'm so excited to find out what you're up to. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Yes, it's a great time to be here, and I'm very excited about what we have going on. So um, I think lots of room to really expand and just you know, touch some areas that we haven't gotten a chance to yet. And um, there's a lot to learn and a lot to share. And we're very excited about all of it. So tell us about this book. Yeah. So the book is interesting. It actually came together from the uh, creator of Critical Therapy Antidote, Val Thomas. She's the editor of the book. And she sort of commissioned a book to be written about critical social justice themes, what about them has made the industry of psychotherapy, especially in the U.S., we've seen a lot of the problems um, that we've had come up with critical social justice issues and ideologies in the classroom and, uh, you know, among just industry professionals in general. And so she wanted to sort of commission this book about why there is this kind of negative, what the negative impact is specifically of critical social justice. So the book is really dynamic because it features people that are working in multiple areas of psychology and sociology. So we have people that are, you know, boots on the ground practitioners that are seeing clients day in and day out, um, all the way through researchers and people who are putting most of their work and focus toward researching and, you know, publishing journal articles and things like that, all the way to social scientists or social psychologists that um, really study society as a whole and in bigger groups and larger groups rather than the individual, um, all the way down to, you know, again, people who are seeing clients and what they're noticing day in and day out. Um, I think my chapter is the only one in there that's focused specifically on teaching and how critical social justice negatively impacts the um, psychotherapy uh, programs here, um, especially, well, specifically in the U.S., that's where I work. So my focus was specifically on the experience I had at one particular university, um, although I had experience working at a couple of universities that had similar things going on. My fo I focused mostly on the one place that I was at pretty full-time. So I also had gone to school at that particular university. So the 
interest in the chapter was also that I had the experience of being a former student 15, 17 years prior to coming back and teaching there and what the arc of that change looked like and how it um, really severely, uh, drastically changed into a program that was really unrecognizable from when I was a student there. So, yeah, so it's a really, it's a, it's a great book. I've been, you know, my myself and the, my co-hosts have been really privileged to have gotten the manuscript of the finished book before it came out. So we were able to read pretty much the whole thing uh, during the interviews that we have been doing. We've already gotten a sense of what people, what the authors had said and give kind of a teaser in the interviews about what they wrote about, which is fascinating. And I won't give too much away, but it's already going to be out there by the time this episode comes out um, about what the publishing process was for our editor, Val Thomas. It was very hard to get this published. A lot of people loved the material. They loved the manuscript. I mean, there were some edits and things of that nature that were very minor, but the overall picture, people loved it. And in her intro uh, to the podcast and to the book, she does talk about what one of the emails she received from a major publishing house when they were looking at it and they knew her personally, et cetera. Um, a couple of the comments that they made uh, were a little bit rough around the edges, we'll say, as to why they would not publish the book. And it's interesting because she had known these people for a while and she's published books before. So the process was um, arduous, to say the least. And uh, we did get it published. Self-publishing is how is the route that you know Val took, but at least we were able or have been able to get the word out. Uh, but uh, hopefully that'll be enough of a tease to read it <laughs> because when it gets rejected by these publishers, there's a, um, it's interesting, you know, you may want to know why. So be uh, great for people to want to pick it up and just take a quick look. And it's also written um, for the layperson, So people that are not necessarily in the field to be able to understand. And the podcast also, we try to make it really um, engage or friendly with the people that are listening, because it's not just for the uh, population who are in the industry. It's actually for the layperson who kind of wants to understand what all this is, what 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 all this is, what's going on, and how do we move forward from from it? What do these terms mean? And um, the book also features a glossary of terms, which is very helpful too. So, yes. When you talk about the impact on teaching in your chapter and. Uh, is it okay if I just go and name the school yeah. that you're talking about? So, yes. so our <laughs> our conversation today kind of picks up, yes, uh, in some ways where my conversation with Leslie Elliott left off. You know, I remember, um, I think it was like shortly after I met Leslie that I came across your work, and I messaged the two of you. I think, or maybe I just messaged her asking if she knew you. Like, oh, you two need to connect, <laughs> and then you'd already connected, of course. Yes. Um, so small world, and it's it's perfect that you and Leslie cross paths because. Anyone who's familiar with her story, you can go back and listen to that. I, I think it's episode 33 of my podcast. I've also been on her show, uh, mm -hmm. Leslie's YouTube channel, The Radical Center, as have you, Christine, now a couple of times. And, um, you know, Leslie had this experience of discovering some really alarming trends in Antioch's counseling program. Yes. And I think, you know, Leslie being a little bit older, coming back to yeah. grad school after having a family and having some job experience probably helped kind of ground her in her her own sense of of what felt off there um but it must have been 
it must have been really redeeming for you and Leslie to meet each other because she's coming from being a student in this program, experiencing the problems with it. And you experienced those problems from the inside where you were a student at Antioch in the early 2000s. And then you had this experience as faculty where you saw from the inside out the exact same problems that Leslie was talking about. So for anyone who wants to know more about that, I would recommend going to Leslie Elliott's YouTube channel, The Radical Center, and go ahead and look at uh, Leslie's yes. interviews with, with Christine. Yes. And also, um, I was an academic advisor, and I was also an admissions interviewer. So as my role in the faculty, when I became a full-time faculty member, I took on some advisor uh, roles. So I had some students that were uh, not in my classes per se, but that needed it to, you know, everybody gets an academic advisor. So some of the anecdotes that I shared came from students who I may have not had in a classroom, but they were my students that I was advising and they were sharing with me what was happening in their classes and uh, wanted some advice and help on how to deal with it because there were some really troubling experiences they were having. And then there's the component um, that I've talked about before very briefly, but not much about doing the interviews and interviewing students and what the school, you know, what the questions were, what the school sort of commanded of us or commissioned us to do was to go out there and find the best social warrior, social justice warriors we could to be admitted into the program. So I have shared before that I was uncomfortable with some of the decisions I made to accept people that I didn't think were a good fit, but because they answered the social justice question in the interview correctly, that pretty much trumped everything else. And that was the message that was given to us. So I was accepting people that I knew I would never want to go to therapy school or become therapists simply because we had to submit the answers to the questions to back up why we admitted somebody or didn't. And they happened to answer exactly what the school was looking for. So I mentioned this, I think, on Leslie's podcast a bit, a feeling as though I drank the Kool-Aid, and then I kind of used the, the term choked on the Kool-Aid is probably more like it, until I was able to take a step back because I knew something wasn't right uh, inside, in my gut, uh, and I was uncomfortable going forward, making decisions to do things I didn't agree with, and that's kind of where the friction between me and the program started. I want to ask you about the way that these kind of program administrators are currently thinking about these issues, because you and I are both well aware that the way that people are approaching therapy these days is antithetical to many of the core tenets of psychotherapy. And, you know, a couple that come to mind include um, like self-awareness of countertransference yes. and of... Um, the, you know, the Cartman drama triangle, right? Like yes. I, re I remember learning that in grad school, learning to recognize how drama is created by people falling into the roles of victim, rescuer, and perpetrator and how those roles can shift around. And, uh, you know, that the therapists were, when, when I was in grad school, we were expected to self-examine and be aware of our tendency to fall into those roles, especially yes. the rescuer role. Yes. And when I, when I hear about how counseling is being taught today, and I, I see these dynamics coming up and how people talk about therapy in general. Um, it seems like all of that has been forgotten. Yes. So I'm curious, as someone who was recently working in this type of grad program, did they, did programs just stop 
teaching self-awareness of countertransference? Do they stop teaching about the drama triangle, about rescuer complexes? Or are they teaching that stuff and just not putting two and two together? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. They are teaching that, but I think that the way that it's taught, what they're asked, they're, they're leading you to find something. So this isn't an open-ended, open inquiry, if you will, self-examination. This is a self-examination task that they're giving you so that you can reach a conclusion they want you to reach. And the conclusion they want you to reach is that you know, you are going to fall in one of two very you know, broad categories of either being somebody who is either an anti-racist or a racist, or we'll say oppressed or oppressor. We can use those even more loosely. That's so they're directed and guided toward you coming to a conclusion they want you to find out about yourself. And that's where the problem is. It's not an inquiry or exploration where where you land is where you land and what you discover is considered your self-awareness and what you've done to go inside and look at who you are as a person. If you miss this component of these two roles I've sort of mentioned very broadly, I won't go into the weeds there, then you're missing your self-examination. So you're going to get back some feedback from your professors about that component of it. And so you are being told that you're doing some self-awareness, uh, but there's an agenda behind it. And you need to keep digging and digging until you can find that moment, that particular place that we're trying to help you discover, which is that you fall into one of two <laughs> these two categories very broadly. So it's not that it's not happening. It's that it's happening with a very guided outcome-based agenda. And when it comes to, you know, the victim perpetrator type, you know, cycle, um, that is tied into those other terms, as I mentioned, anyhow, which is that you have been a victim, you've been oppressed, you become woke when you finally understand that you either have been oppressed this very many long time in, in history and in your years of life and all of the generations preceding you in this country, um, or you are the oppressor and unwittingly and knowingly or knowingly um, have asserted your privilege onto other people. And that's what's made you successful in the way in which you are successful at that moment or has opened up opportunities for you that other people do not have. So yes, that exists. The addition to that is that they have an agenda of a point in which they want you to reach. And um, that's what you are evaluated on. You know, the evaluation scale, it's based on several areas, but one of them is how aware are you of your own social justice, you know, concerns or issues? How well do you understand what it means and how you fit into this world, this very complicated world that we have to dismantle, essentially, uh, which consists of, you know, an ongoing oppressed, oppressor, oppressor, oppressed cycle. And um, how do we tear down those institutions and how do you promote you know, or how are you complicit in promoting white supremacy or whatever it is, the, 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 the word of the day or the phrase of the day, if you will. So really I lacking in nuance. It's the nuance that's missing completely because it's very collectivist and it's very much about big kind of the in groups and out groups and tribalism and um, the nuance of individuality or individual experience, the complexity of you know, there's so many factors that involve how you see your world or how you were 
uh, grew up to come to the conclusions you've drawn, you know, at certain points in your life, all of that is pretty much wiped away and sort of watered down uh, into this very broad um, judgmental viewpoint that doesn't leave room for all the nuance. And you had some experiences, life experiences, that it seemed yeah. like strengthened <clears throat> strengthened your immunity to this way of thinking. So um, in your other interviews, you've talked about your experience as a grief counselor, your personal experiences of grief, losing your, your mother as a young adult, and what drew you to Mm-hmm. doing grief work and and the importance of not ranking grief that you don't mm-hmm. compare your suffering yes to someone else's that that grief is grief and and you know even I'll just talk about beyond the issue of grief in particular when it comes to just suffering more generally um I've often noticed in therapy people coming to me saying oh you probably don't want to hear about my problems I don't want to waste your time you probably have you know, people dealing with worse issues than mine, or I have it so, so lucky. And, and, you know, oftentimes these are people who um, were pretty darn neglected as children coming to me saying this, right? Like, and really did not have their needs met on a very deep level. But that's part of that, how they've internalized the childhood emotional neglect is, oh, my needs don't matter. I'm burdening this therapist. People have it worse than me. And, and oftentimes that attitude is, it's an impediment to therapy. And so I address it, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and sometimes I'll address it playfully. It depends on the client's sense of humor and my rapport with them. I'll say, oh, yeah, you think I just want to hear from only the people who've had the worst suffering all day? You think that's right. what I want to do for a living? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Come on, give yes. me a break. Like, be a, be a lighter <laughs> client for me. No, yes. But like, you know, yes. <laughs> right. it's like, Sometimes it's like you you have to work through that because that that's part of yes. what's in the way of self compassion yes. as well as what's in the way of therapy. So, and and that's you know what to speak of grief, right? That yes. how how could anyone compare one person's grief to the next, and and why would you? Yes. And this whole idea of this kind of hierarchy of suffering, it's like if you follow that to its logical conclusion, then everyone in the world should just pass the compassion or rather pity down the chain until we mm-hmm. find the absolutely most disadvantaged person in the world. And we should all focus on helping that person yes. and not care about anything else. So so you have this experience with grief counseling and with, you know, as you say, not ranking grief. And you also have a different cultural background. Um, yes. And I always think it's interesting when the, when so, so, the social justice warriors go after non-white people or gay people or anyone who like according to their own hierarchy should be the person that they're yes. listening to but for people who are just listening and not watching uh you are not white um <laughs> I and am not, your cultural yes. background is that you are yes. uh egyptian and syrian uh, but you correct. didn't know you were half syrian until you your yeah. 30s because yeah. i just listened to one of your other interviews so yes. in my mind. Yes. um and uh and you know second generation your parents immigrated like a year before you were born and so from your own cultural background, I'm so impressed. Though, like, that's like amazing. Well, I just listened like an hour ago. That's about as long as my memory lasts. So I will have forgotten this in two hours. But, uh, Good enough over now. It's great. But like, but I was, I was thinking about your cultural background because, you know, um, yes. like you talk about how there is racism in the Middle East and it operates differently than the racism here, right? How like the Syrians are looked down upon by the Egyptians and the 
Christians and the Muslims don't like each other and that there is some skin color bias. Yes. And, um, but that like you went to um, school in a poor neighborhood. Yes. You know, I also came from a poor and diverse neighborhood and like in your social hierarchy growing up, the cool kids were the Latinos. They were like cooler than the whites. And, you know, me too. Like I wanted to be black when I was like eight because those were the cool kids. Right. So, um, and I think that when you have uh, an experience growing up that does not fit the narratives of the critical social justice stuff, it, I mean, I, I'd like to say it, it in- inoculates people. I do think that they're, mm-hmm. you know, I spent years of my life denying my own experience to try to fit into a narrative, even though my life experiences yeah. didn't add up. But I'm curious, I mean, do you feel like, because so much of what you described about your own cultural background, like growing up around poor white people, and then you're being told that like white equals wealthy, like things like that. Do you feel like that kind of helped you see through it or? Yeah, I think it did because I don't, you know, interestingly, I think the kind of the the white is better or the white girls are the more attractive. For me, the messaging about that came through in movies and, and TV shows. It didn't come through my lived experience or the world I observed around me. So it wasn't until maybe I became more aware of those messaging, those messages that were coming through in the mainstream, you know, TV and media and whatnot, that that were very different and kind of opposed to what I experienced on a daily basis, which had nothing really much to do with white people. And it wasn't as cool or it wasn't as attractive. I mean, the blonde girl kind of look was not as much the in thing as it was on TV as it was. I mean, it just wasn't in person, though, in my experience. Um, So it did have a lot to do with that. And my parents and family, I mean, I think, you know, there was a, there was a lot of mixed messaging. On the one hand, my parents, my mother, I'll say in particular, did not want me to reveal my uh, background of uh, being Middle Eastern because she was afraid I would be, um, you know, discriminated against. My sister and I have American first names, Carolyn and Christine. And the reason for that and why we have American first names is because my parents, my mother again in particular, was worried that on a resume, if it looked like I had a foreigner, she would say the word foreigner was the words she would use, first name, then maybe I would get, you know, turned down for jobs. Even our last name is not the same last name as it would, you know, our original last name actually doesn't, it's not a real last name. It's the first name of my grandfather, my grandfather's first name. But again, because our last name would have been Abdul Malak and Abdul sounds Middle Eastern and she didn't want all the judgment around that. So it's, it's that's kind of a, a message that was also <laughs> percolating too, is that my parents weren't about, you know, this big, we're big, you know, occult, acculturating. They were about assimilating and, you know, the difference with acculturation and assimilation that they wanted us to blend in to the American culture, not for us to be able to say, hey, protect the, you know, Middle Eastern Egyptian culture that we came to this country with. They didn't have that much interest in that. They wanted us to blend, especially again, my mother. And that wasn't the case in my family with other cousins and relatives. My mom was a bit of a rebel, if you will. And she's the only, you know, person that really sort of stood up and, and said, we want our kids to be raised a little differently than that. So I wasn't also really raised much around my 
Egyptian and Syrian family members, even though they they had immigrated too. So there was a lot of components. That's why the nuance of all of this is so, so important to me. And when it's lacking, it's distressing because I didn't grow up in a traditional way that was American, quote unquote, or a traditional way that was Egyptian either. I mean, it was a totally, maybe a little bit of that, a little bit of everything was sort of thrown. And my parents didn't really understand what they wanted us to grow up you know, around or, or feeling other than to have a good education, to feel good about ourselves. Uh, they loved the American culture, but my mom was always afraid too, or my dad would be afraid. Well, don't get on drugs. The Americans are on drugs. All the Americans are on drugs. That's just the way it is. Every American's on drugs. And if you make it past 18 and you don't get on drugs, then you've made it and you're never going to take drugs, you know? So there was a real lack of understanding and awareness on their part too. So it was confusing on what to pick up from the American culture, what to keep with the Egyptian culture, and what to throw away from all of it. And so it was a complicated. It was complicated experience growing up the way that I did. And I was confused a lot. And uh, I wasn't, you know, necessarily part of the popular group. And I wasn't, you know, part of the, the group that was the most attractive either. But again, conflicting messages about what the attractive girls and, and, and boys really, who who were they and what did they look like? There was a lot of, con, you know, sort of um, conflicting messaging there too. So I cannot, that's why this way of looking at, you know, you're either here or there makes no sense to me because I was never in either group. I was never the oppressed and I was never the oppressor. I wasn't really in any of those groups. Um, I was a blend of a bunch of different factors. So the flattening of that and what that whole, you know, kind of um, way of thinking does, it flattens the individual experience. You don't understand the nuance that's involved that my best friend who was black was very wealthy um, and I wanted to be her. I wanted her parents to be my parents. Um, I, I looked up to them. I thought they were great. She always had the best clothes. So I had a very different experience of, of that as well. Um, maybe I think socioeconomically was probably a bit more of what I felt the, the burn, um, if you will, than anything else. I think it's important for us to tell these stories because there is this dominant narrative about race and class and social hierarchy and who has it worse. And, you know, the more the more conversations we have about this, the more diversity we see there really is in people's cultural experiences. Mm -hmm. And and I think that, um, you know, there's so many of us for whom the dominant narrative doesn't fit our own personal experiences, but we go along with it thinking, oh, I'm I'm the outlier here. Yes. You know, my experience didn't fit, but on the whole, this this must be the the truth. But really, it's life is so much richer than that. And yes. the idea that you have to teach therapists to look through this rigid lens in order for them to be able to understand their clients is really short sighted and backwards, in my opinion. So, speaking of therapy, I wanted to ask you about um, you know the contents of this book. So you say that um, this is about the impact of critical social justice ideas on the field of th psychotherapy. I know your chapter specifically is about teaching and you yes. talk about that in your other conversations, but, um, you know, more broadly with the work that you're doing with critical therapy antidote, um, what else would you like to say about how is critical social justice impacting the field of therapy and what are the implications of that for society? 
I mean, I, you know, so we're kind of talking, I'm, I'm actually kind of pulled back into a couple of memories that stood out to me when I was teaching when we were on campus. And I have to tell you, and I don't think I've said this on any other show before, I felt extremely, maybe I ha- have mentioned this, but I felt extremely excluded when I was teaching. I didn't feel like I was matched up or good enough because I had been teaching around all of these people that have all of these, you know, very developed ideas about critical social justice. The first time I heard the word woke was in 2019 or 2018, I want to say. I'd already been teaching by then for a while, and I didn't really know what it meant. And so there was always this feeling that I had when I was there that I just didn't match up because a lot of my colleagues were sort of running around with these concepts that they were so intangible, and I didn't understand them. And I wanted them to make it make sense to me, tell it to me like I'm five, you know, and I wanted to understand what it is they meant. And I, and I didn't, I didn't understand these concepts and, and why was it bad to be colorblind? I had no idea that that was a bad thing to be. So for me, colorblindness came with a, you know, I don't, you know, see your color in a way that makes me value you or not value you. It doesn't factor into the equation. That was how I always understood it. So they're running around with sort of these ideas. And I walked through the halls of the offices when I was going to my own office. And there's all these signs up that are very aggressive in nature and feel very assertive, but not even assertive. They feel aggressive. And then I was embarrassed and ashamed that I didn't know about all of these, you know, different ideologies that were being peddled and that I needed to know more about them. And so I also didn't feel that I was really going to be a very effective professor, you know, and not to toot my horn. I had many students come to me and tell me I was one of their favorites, actually. My husband, you know, he used to go to Pilates and one of his instructors happened to be a student of mine. He came up in conversation and she's like, oh, Christine is my favorite, you know, professor ever. Why? Because I didn't walk in with anything other than you know, what I felt was what it really meant to be a therapist is, you know, in I, on the you know, on the ground, you know, in, you know, in the boots or whatever the boots on the ground kind of experience. Let me tell you what it is to just sit with someone, you know, when it's just you, you and that person in the room and these other things don't really matter other than one human being is looking into the eyes of another human being. And right there is where the magic happens. That's where the magic starts and begins. And it's on that connection that you don't need to know a single thing about them other than it's another human in front of you who's come because they have some level of pain. And to me, that was where I always started. So when I didn't understand all these things and I felt very stupid and unintelligent and that, you know, these students were going to more than one class, obviously, that I was going to be the dopey professor that didn't know anything. And that was my own feeling of shortcomings or, you know, being in, you know, in, you know, and just not, um, not intelligent enough. I wasn't able to to do that. So I started to feel the 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 effects, I guess, of just kind of what the ideology in general does, which is kind of make you feel stupid. It makes you feel that you don't know what you've done if you're on that side of the 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 coin. And that my, you know, if that I didn't know what the word woke meant, you know, I was completely then dismissing black people and pretty much their entire history. And I thought, how can that be that I just because I just don't know this one word, I it just kind of seeks to make you feel that way. I think that's the thing that I would that I would say is I never felt smart when I was around my colleagues because this is the stuff they would talk about in the hallways. And these are the concepts and ideas that they would, you know, that, that would they would sort of just float around. And messy conversations was started by, 
you know, one of the core faculty who had written 1500 books or whatever, and had had all these papers published and was such, you know, a person that was a learned woman. And then she's coming up with these messy conversations where we have to talk about all of these, you know, complicated factors that impact, you know, who we are as people. And I'm sitting there going, what happens when you're in the room, though, with somebody and they are bawling their brains out and pouring their their heart and soul out to you. Does it matter? Does all that matter? Does it matter that I don't know or remember whatever woke crap happened in whatever year, how we came to terms with the word woke? No, we were missing the humanity. I mean, and that just kind of used to just really agitate me, quite frankly. And because that's where I always came from was how do you find a point of compassion for the person in front of you that you may hate? You may just hate them. Is there a way where you can find a point of compassion, something that allows you to have some level of empathy for someone else? And without that, why do all these theories matter? Why does it, I'm not going to go into a therapy room with my list of interventions in my toolbox and pull them out when the client says this, this is how I'll respond and vice versa. It never happens that way, as you know. We don't know what we're going to get from our clients ever. I mean, we might assume that they're going to present one way and they come in one day and drop a bomb on your on your lap that you never thought you'd hear or see from a mile away. How do you deal with that? Those to me were the real life ways to teach people how to become therapists or how to be, you know, in con, you know, in in just be in a space with somebody to where it is you and this other person and you're having these very real and very human conversations and all that other stuff just doesn't matter. And to me, that's what I brought to teaching, but it was not what I felt was valued anymore at a point um, among my colleagues. Uh, I knew my students valued it, but my colleagues I felt didn't. So I didn't say much to them. I was very quiet and stayed out of, you know, conversations for too long because I always felt I was going to look stupid for not having a broader handle on all of these concepts that they were talking about. Um, so I think that clouded a little bit um, of my own perception. I didn't feel that I wanted to, you know, become very close with anybody there. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8Sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. 
even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. And to my listeners around the world, 8sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. I mean, you know, it's interesting because a good colleague and friend of mine, she and I used to work together at the same clinic, and then, you know, I, I we both moved on. But one of her interns came to her one day. This is, I hope, a good example to kind of reflect an overall issue that we're having. So one of the interns came to her and said, I'm going to quit working as a counselor here or therapist here. And she asked her why, of course, and she said, well, the the, uh, client made a comment that was a microaggression toward Asians, and because of that, I'm leaving. So she and one of her other friends, who is also an intern there, decided to leave over this microaggression. And I thought, well, I worked in addiction for a while you're going to get all sorts of comments thrown at you as a therapist. Everything you can imagine, maybe some name calling. I have seen it all. I have been there, done that. I've worked with the teens. I worked with the younger folks all over the map. You need to have some level of, you know, thick skin, you know, to an extent. And for a client to say something to you that is so, so upsetting because it's a microaggression, you know, microaggression is, I mean, you know, we talk about intent versus impact. What did they intend uh, versus what the impact was on you, which may have not been what their intention was. But without asking those questions or exploring it, there's an automatically, you know, we jump to the assumption that the person was ill-willed. So if you have therapists that are coming out of these programs and they're feeling that way with their clients, they're that fragile, my very first question to her is like, what... What are these people, what are you going to do with this big crop of people that you have that are coming into therapy as therapists that can't even handle a comment from their client and automatically jump to this conclusion and decide they can't practice? Well, on the one hand, great, I'm glad that they've decided they can't practice. But on the other hand, what about all the other ones who slip through who are fragile as well and who can't have that open conversation because they're either A, fragile themselves and they can't handle whatever a client might say, or B, they are so afraid of their client, afraid of upsetting or offending their client that they don't ask the questions. They don't go into these deeper places because they're worried about how their client's going to feel or or they're worried about upsetting or offending their client. So there's like two sides of this coin here where the therapist becomes so fragile that they can't do the work. And the other side is that the therapist maybe is hypersensitive or hyper aware or, you know, too, too afraid, et cetera, that they don't do justice for the, you know, to the client and their own process, which means going into deep places or places that are painful or places that might be dark and really explore what that is because they don't want to offend them. So on either side of this coin, obviously the fail, the, you know, the failure here um, is going to be with, you know, the, the the client and the lack of the client getting good therapy. I mean, that's ultimately who it's going to affect. So I think that's what really worries me is that there's there was so much of that that was starting to happen. And the therapists themselves were afraid 
um, to upset people or, 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 you know, wanted, you know, more information about their own privilege so that they could be better quality therapists. And I'm sitting here thinking, yes, but do you know how to listen? Do you know how to actually just be in the same space with somebody? Do you know how to hold space in a room? Do you know how to sit while you're crying and sobbing uncontrollably? On the, on the couch without shoving a tissue at them to make them stop crying and just sit with the pain, just sit with it? What about that? These are like the basic ethos of the profession. I mean, that's kind of what drew me so much to critical therapy antidote is we're losing that, that the healing ethos of the profession is getting swallowed up by all of this other junk that's noise and it's nonsense. And it doesn't do anything to actually bring healing into the room. You know, to be able to bear witness to somebody's pain and struggle is a privilege. But when we're so caught up in thinking about what immutable characteristics we might have and what they have and what the context is politically and socially and all of these complicated factors, then we've lost the sincerity and the humanness in the whole thing. And that's what was very hard for me to watch and hard for me to be a part of. It scared me. Yeah. And, and when you talk about some of the trends of the... Um the anti-white sentiment that's so popular right now, right? Um, I believe there was, there was a headline about like a thousand people, a thousand people were polled. I think it might've been like a thousand black people and like half of them said it's not okay to be white. Like, well, if it's not okay to be white, then do you want me to kill myself? Is that is that what wow. this is about? Like, you know, what's the alternative? Because I was born this way. It's an immutable characteristic, right? Exactly. And when you describe in some of your other interviews and when other whistleblowers describe some of the things that people are saying that are really um, concerning in their in their conditioned mm -hmm. lack of empathy for people based on having the wrong skin yeah. color or the wrong sex or orientation, like um, – it's it's abusive on multiple levels, right? So for one, it's not safe to be a client mm -mm. if you're at risk of being seen by a therapist who is going to have conditioned out their empathy for you based on the color of your skin or other mm -hmm. immutable characteristics um, or who wants to see you suffer because they've conditioned themselves into this sadistic mentality based on the social justice narrative. So it's not safe for the clients. It's an abusive situation to be in, right? Especially yes. if there, you know, if there is some sadism going on in the therapist. But it's also, it strikes me as abusive for the therapist to be indoctrinated into this. It's a, it's a psychological abuse of the therapist trainee because you have someone who's led into a profession by their caring nature Presumably, they haven't always been this way. Presumably, there's some good in them that wants to help yes. people. And then they get indoctrinated into this belief system, whether it happens through grad school or it happens through the, through the culture at large, and then they just happen to go to grad school. But you have someone who has some good in them who's essentially being taught to hate their fellow man. They're essentially being taught that if you want to be a good person, you have to have no empathy for yes. white people or for straight men or whatever the category might be that you're supposed to hate. And you're supposed to put on this very negative filter whereby 
anytime your fellow human who looks like this or has these immutable characteristics is suffering, you yourself are supposed to either feel nothing or feel like a sense of righteous yeah. vengeance that they, that they deserve this. And of course, I think people like that shouldn't be practicing therapy. But I also want to say that it's they have been very deeply psychologically abused to be conditioned to become so, frankly, um, uh, it's it's maleficent. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's a very good point. And if we talk about the power, you know, we do talk, address this in just traditional psychotherapy courses. I mean, a traditional program would talk about the power struggle or the power dynamics in the room, you know, with the therapist versus the client and who, you know, the client as, you know, client seeing the therapist as the authority figure in a sense, or the expert on themselves. And how do we deal with that power dynamics so that we create kind of a more equitable feeling in the room? So already in and of itself, kind of the, 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 the core values, you know, of teaching what it means to be a therapist or how it means to be in a room with somebody is being aware that there's already a power dynamic there that you want to somehow you know, kind of level out so that the client doesn't feel as though you are the expert on themselves, that they realize they're the expert of their own lives and that you do, you know, have this knowledge and this, you know, experience to help guide or whatever, however you want to put that in context. So there's already an acknowledgement of that in a classical program. Now, when we add the critical social justice lens to that, it's even more dangerous because at that point, it's telling you that not only is the power dynamic there, it's on a much deeper level now because historically speaking, you've built this up over the you know decades that we've been doing this, but also that it's never going to go away. There's never going to be a point where it's ever going to feel that there's a, a an equitable you know you know feeling or context in the room that that just will never exist. So what's the point? <laughs> as simple as that. It's just, what's the point in going to therapy and what's the point in having a therapist? I mean, in general, you know, it's, it's never this, these absolutes, you know, and I've said this before to my students, you know, we, life is very rarely black and white in therapy. It's even less. So there's a couple of things that are black and white. Don't sleep with your client, you know, make sure <laughs> your client reports, you know, or tells you about some kind of abuse or what, et cetera. We have all these kinds of sort of mandates and laws. The rest of it, though, is gray. And that's what life is, is gray. It's this pool of uncertainty where it's constantly shifting and changing. And there's a lot of things that muddy the waters. And just because, you know, somebody feels one way today doesn't mean they feel the same the next week. And that kind of uncertainty is hard to live with in general as a human. And it's even harder if you're a therapist and you are in this profession because you never really know what is going to be the outcome for your client. We don't see it often and we don't know and we don't know if what we said or what we're doing with them is really doing anything in the longer term. We only know what we know up until the point that, you know, we see them relative to the length of time they stay and what we know. We have to be okay with that, that it's not going to be, you know, like a marketing report where you can actually show measurable progress or measurable sales that increase or whatever. So there's already a level of that that's happening. And then this critical social justice tries to give you sort of answers to questions or to scenarios that don't have answers because it is going to be different every week, 
every client, it will not be the same. It's going to always be this ever shifting and changing. So you have something that's meant to live in this gray and uncertainty. Then you have, you know, critical social justice that seeks to do the very opposite and put rigidity and boundaries around things that are not boundaried experiences that aren't black or white. So I think that's another problem is that it's trying to solve unanswerable questions or give certainties to things that are uncertain. It seeks to do something that's impossible to do just by the nature of being human and the fact that our own reports and our own feelings are not static. So I think that was a huge problem that I came across uh, is helping when I was training people, at least, or as a professor, is helping them understand, you know, you can't, um, you're not going to get certainty. And that you may, your client may say one thing and, and really be attached to this one fact they present for two years. And then one day they come into the room and it is a completely different story. And if you aren't able to bend and adjust, you have no business doing the work. And then you have critical social justice that comes by and gives you all of these you know, written in stone is kind of how it ap appears to be truths that are very much not truths at all. They're just interpretations, you know, or thoughts that people have. There may be some truth in them, but they are not absolutes for everybody. That's where I think there's a huge problem because the field in its nature is not absolute. You know, when you talk about the the critical social justice worldview sort of and this wasn't your word, but I heard it as like condemning us yes. to this dynamic forever. It sounds like hell. Yes. In the sense that it'll never stop that as long as immutable characteristics exist, there will always be these problems with power and privilege and oppression. And no matter how much you try to root this original sin out from your heart. There's always more work to do. Yes. It sounds like hell. And, and the thing that's not being said there is that it's an admonishment of love. It's a denial of love. It's saying that love cannot exist. Love and light cannot exist. Yes. In these places. And that sounds, it sounds like hell. It sounds mm -hmm. like being condemned to hell because I believe that love can exist between any two people. Mm-hmm. And love can take many forms. And I do believe that there is a love that pervades the process of psychotherapy. It's like, you know, the the Greek notion of agape. It's like that type mm -hmm. of love. It's not a sexual love. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not even necessarily platonic or fraternal or any of these, but but this kind of universal love yes. that bonds us as humans, as you could say, children of God. Yes. That we are having the shared experience and the love that it takes and that it fosters in us to be with someone in pain. You know, that's that's where the light is. That's where the healing is. That's where the magic is. That's why it's an honor to do this work. It is a sacred role that we get yes. to fulfill. And it feels like only a demonic force would want to condemn us to a, a fate where we are forever prescribed by these narratives that tell us this person has power and privilege and this person is oppressed and that forever shall be the dynamic between them. Yes, it's hopeless. And once we get to a place of hopelessness, there's no reason to continue. 
And that's what, you know, the the students would ask. Sometimes we had really, I mean, we have really hard cases. We'd had, I know I was clinical supervisor for a long time too. There'd be very, very challenging situations with clients and, and we don't know, you know, how do we help them? Do they, you know, what kind of care do they need? Are we enough? Should they be in a higher level of care? I mean, all these kinds of questions that would come up. And there was already so much of, of, of that that we had to deal with and so much of, you know, being able to, you know, understand their pain, being able to empathize with them. And then we're trying to also kind of fill, fill in where's the personal responsibility component and all of that also. So there's all of these other, you know, layers and things that are always happening at one time that we're saying or not saying or, or, or aware of or not aware of, but, but they're there. And when you have this hopelessness that you want to add to that, already very difficult and complicated, you know, relationship, I guess, or, or circumstance there, then it becomes pointless to do any of this at all. And so when they would come to me, my students or, you know, my trainees, and they were so hopeless about clients or whatever, you know, I'd always say to them, look, you know, sometimes this is something that was taught to me, you know, by good mentors that I've had over the years. Sometimes you have to hold the hope for them, the hope that they can't hold for themselves, you have to hold that for them. And you walk in there and, you know, it is okay, you know, to feel hopeless or helpless too, but there has to be a part of you that really believes that, or this person will never really believe what you're saying is sincere and it will be hard for them to ever see it in themselves. And if you can't hold that hope for everybody, then there's really no point in doing the work. So when you have critical social justice, that's sort of rearing its head, what it's doing is taking any bright spot of hope, even if it's a teeny little spot in a sea of darkness, it just smashes out that light. It turns it off each and every time. It seeks to turn off our light. You know, the light that we have as humans or the light that's in our hearts, it seeks to just turn it off. So, you know, you add that component to it. And I don't understand how it becomes even tenable for anybody to be a therapist or to do the work or to go to therapy. Uh, because it's very dark and uh, it's very, very vast. It's just, you know, very, without hope, you don't have anything as people. And I want to say something, and this is out, outside of sort of the therapy world. You know, my parents, and I haven't shared about this publicly, my parents, you know, were divorced. They had a very, very horrible marriage. And, you know, I always asked my mother, they, they eventually divorced when I was, you know, older in life and more on my own and whatever. And, you know, how do my mom survive all that? And it was hope. You know, it wasn't even hope in a particular, the hope that she would talk about wasn't even tangible, like, oh, hope that I would leave him or that he would turn out to be a better husband. No, it was something she couldn't put into words, but it was more of, I guess, a spiritual um, faith or a spiritual support or a spiritual, a deeper place than anything surface level that allowed her to get up every day and survive. And then if I didn't find that in myself or have that as an example for me to internalize, then there's no reason, there's no way for me to have gotten through all of the things that I did as a human, as a person outside of being a therapist, just in the world. So when I hear about an ideology that destroys hope, destroys it, I cannot look at that and say that that's pro-human. To me, it's demonic. It is a spiritual war, you know, that we're at. And that right there seeks to turn off light. And to turn off my mother's light, you know, God bless her. She died many years ago, but 
those things to me are not pro-human, they're anti-human. And that's where I cannot align with them. Just for that basic, just core lack of humanity that is infused into these types of, I don't know, constructs, ways of thinking about the world. Yeah. Wow. Really dark, isn't it? Very. As a therapist, I've gotten an up-close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being, like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar. And it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. Yeah, I just, um, you know, I'm recording this the same day as I recorded the conversation that'll probably come out the week before this, which yes. is Amy Gallagher. and, and Oh, you know, wow, started. that's great. How was that? Yeah. It I was mean, great. And we and we talked about the spiritual a lot. And I, I told her my idea of uh, blessed, not oppressed, and how mm-hmm. I think Gen okay. Z really needs a spiritual revival mm-hmm. because there's this clinging to – well, and, and this is maybe a good segue from the spiritual into secondary gain, right? And that's, mm-hmm. again, one of those things where I'm like, why aren't – why aren't people being taught this in grad school or anymore? Or, or how did it become so distorted? You know, because earlier I was talking about what happened to learning to recognize countertransference and being aware of our own rescuer complexes and how that can affect therapy. You know, and another element is secondary gain, which to loop it back to the drama triangle often corresponds yes. with the victim role, but it can correspond to any role, right? And so for those in our audience who aren't therapists, who aren't familiar with these terms, you know, secondary gain is basically a term we use to describe uh, the fact that sometimes people are getting something out of clinging to their suffering. And that doesn't mean it's conscious or intentional or certainly not malicious. But, um, you know, sometimes, for example, we get sympathy Mm -hmm. from being Mm -hmm. sick or oppressed in some way. That's the payoff. I think you have a generation right now with the direction the culture has been headed, a generation that is all about the secondary gain. That's all about the self-diagnosis and labeling oneself as sick or ailing in some way, as oppressed 
or limited in some way, and then just completely saturating themselves on a diet of secondary gain. It's like a junk food diet for the soul, right? That rather than getting the real nourishment that comes from being grateful for what you have and working with it and making meaning and creating from there, that you're you're soaking up on the sympathy or attention that you get or the the ego gratification of having an excuse for why you're not manifesting the creative potential within you. So it's like, you know, when I was coming of age in grad school, um, we learned about secondary gain. Mm -hmm. We learned how to be aware of those complex dynamics that could be happening intrapsychically within the individual, not entirely consciously. Um, and, and I learned to work with this. And so I'm so grateful when I get to have those moments with my clients where they realize something about their secondary gain. It's not shameful. It's just human. But, you know, like when when something clicks for someone where they're like, wow, you know, I've kind of been clinging to my depression like it's my mm-hmm. identity. I'm like, yay, light bulb moment. This is so important right. because, you know, if yes. how are we going to help you recover from depression if it means yes. that you lose your identity? We have yes. to address the secondary gain in order to help make sure your environment and your life is actually going to support you letting go of the things that are weighing down your heart. Yes. That's so beautifully said. That's so beautifully said. But yes, that's that's the the other component is I mean secondary gain, I think, you know, the question I would pose to my, you know, trainees, I guess, is, you know, like what's the payoff? What what do people get out of this particular behavior or that particular way of thinking. And I think that, you know, there's something that is so sinister about, you know, critical social justice that it actually, it provides that, that, that secondary gain. And it, I don't know, it sort of seeks to keep you weakened by it. So if we're saying that in some way that secondary gain sort of takes your identity or whatever, it also is a way that um, takes away your responsibility from having to, you know, respond or have own up to your own actions, some ownership of your own, you know, personal responsibility. It seeks to take that away from you, and it does, so that if that is propped up and that everything is okay, it's all justified because of this one truth that we're talking about, or series of truths that we're talking about. So how is that in any way healing for somebody? How do they take responsibility for the things that they can change if they're basically told they never really need to because it was already the system was set up to be this way and to make them fail that there is no way out of that and the system is set up that way so that they can continue to stay mired in it. So we're basically giving them this kind of indulgence in a way um of of indulging in some of these things. Not the depression is something indulgent, but it's a way to maybe, you know, kind of say, well, you don't have to take responsibility for all these other things because you were put in this position. And because of that, you know, you're always going to suffer or or you're going to get less for the same amount of effort that you put in. So it's justifiable to kind of stay in that. And then who wins in that scenario? It continues to sort of you know, perpetuate that the winner is always going to stay the same, which to me in my mind is the kind of the elite, the elitist capture, the elite group, you know, of people that are whomever they are, this elite uh, that allows them to kind of continue to be in more of a position of power and keep people in more of a position of 
feeling dependent on something, whether it's, I don't know, some dependency, I guess, whether it's on their own, you know, emotional state or dependency on this, whatever this secondary gain is. But dependency um, is a good word. I was, I was thinking addiction, like, yes. And it's, and it's all, it's all cute and fun until it's not right. Like, like it's the sort of thing you can mess around with when you're young. Yes. You can mess around with an addiction and a, and a, a superficial egoic gratification from getting praise or sympathy for identifying with your problems or ways in which you're limited or ways, ways in which you can't do things. But there comes an age and a stage in life where it's really not cute and it's not funny and it has mm-hmm. serious consequences. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, roughly that age is about 30, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, you one. can mess around yes. uh, before then with um, identifying with your oppression mm-hmm. and not taking responsibility for controlling what you can to improve your circumstances in life. But if you haven't formed good habits by the age of 30, of being proactive, and I mean the really basic stuff like cleaning mm-hmm. up after yourself, yes, going to bed at a decent hour, eating yes. well, moving yes. your body every day, trying yes. to make something of yourself, trying to improve something about yourself yes. every day, learning an instrument or a language, you know, whatever it is, if if you're not in the habit by the age of 30 of striving to make some kind of improvements of the things you can control in your life as a habit then things start getting really hard really fast and you start yeah. aging out of it being cute and fe- and people feeling sorry for mm-hmm. yourself and and that you know w- what we're talking about is i think in part the development of personality disorders mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and the concretization very much that's why you know that's why i called my conversation with andrew hartz um counseling in a cluster b culture mm-hmm. because uh, and it's just right. So shameful to see our profession that used to help people with personality disorders actually breeding them by encouraging people in the very habits that make for personality disorders, which again are not cute, they're not fun, they're sources of lifelong suffering yeah. for yourself Lots and everyone around you. Mm-hmm. And you use the word addiction. We saw that a lot, or we see that a lot in addiction. I mean, it was a constant, you know, I worked in addiction for for several years and I taught addiction when it was one of the classes I used to teach. You know, and we saw that sort of cluster B, the the personality disorder kind of issues along with an addiction. So dual diagnosis, but at the end of the day, you can slap whatever label you want on it. It's all the same, like five or six behaviors. It's the same five or six ways in which people clung to their oppressed state of being. And that served eventually as this excuse for continuing to use the substance or continuing to use those manipulative behaviors or those behaviors where that are not cute anymore in order to garner some level of empathy or some level level of access to something that's not, you know, good for them or no longer serves them. And those very same people, as you're talking about, where it's not cute, have kids. They have responsibilities to raise these other humans. They have partners. They have all sorts of other people in their lives that are so deeply affected by that. And I think 30 you know, that's sort of that age, you know, when you mentioned that as being the age where it's not cute anymore, to me, that's where, okay, we're, we're fine. You're finally a full-fledged adult now. You're no longer, you know, in your 20s, you can kind of still say, oh, I'm in my 20s. There's this kid-like feel about it. 
but you hear about 30s and you start to think, okay, home, roots, some kind of foundation. And these people, okay, they're not just damaging their own lives anymore. Now they've got kids that they're damaging, maybe grandkids that they're involved with, whatever the case may be, uh, careers, jobs. There's a lot of things at that point that become injured as a result of that. And that's what I saw with addiction over again, over and over again, time and time again, is the over-identification with these pieces of their lives that they felt were oppre- oppressive pieces that caused all of this suffering. The actual treatment of addiction is very opposite from supporting or continuing to align with the, the oppressive parts. So that's the other problem, I think, with social critical social justice is what happens when you're trying to treat somebody who has addiction. Treatment of addiction, you're very much upfront. You're very direct. You very much point out the, the behavior and, 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 you know, there's no excuse made for it. There's an understanding about why you do it, how, how it serves you, what your gain is, you know, what you get out of it, but that doesn't excuse it. So how does that fit in the mix? Well, social justice is critical. Social justice has no place in the treatment of addiction. It just doesn't because it furthers that whole secondary gain problem that we're there to begin with. And if you do that, the addict will never get clean. It's already hard enough to get clean as it is, right? I mean, I think seven or eight times in rehab is the average before somebody gets clean or can stay clean. And it's only five to 7% that can be clean for the rest of their lives after that many stints in rehab. And it's not that the treatment doesn't work. It's that it does work and it's very effective, but for a lot of reasons, very expensive. People drop out. There's a lot of other reasons I won't get into, but that's very hard to treat. We already have the stacks. The odds are against us is my point. We've all, we already have the the odds stacked against every single person who walks in. So when we add something like that to the mix, critical social justice, we're even, we're furthering, we're adding more, stacking more against somebody's potential healing and sobriety for a lifetime. That kills families. You know, people die. They die. You either get sober or you die. You know, so there's yeah. there's that component where it's not cute anymore. It's act, as you said, but it's actually potentially life threatening. I've seen people Absolutely. die from that disease that I treated. And, and here in Portland, Oregon, we have a really bad you know fentanyl and meth situation, and mm-hmm. we I think mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of homeless people lining the streets. Um. Yes. You know, I, I'll play devil's advocate for a second just to yeah. talk about, you know, does, does social justice have a place in treatment of addiction? Well, here's what I can say. We know that a person's ACEs score mm-hmm. is going to correlate with their vulnerability to addiction, yes. right? So uh, for those who aren't familiar, ACEs stand for uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale, and it's basically a ranking from zero to 10 on before you turned 18, did you have these experiences like experiencing violence in the home, poverty, addiction, things like that? And um, I remember I was in an EMDR training a few years ago and uh, my ACEs score is four. Mm-hmm. And I remember like looking at the um, these exponential curve graphs showing that for every one point raise in your ACEs score, how your likelihood of all of these problems came up, whether it was homelessness, addiction, uh, incarceration, early death, mental illness, uh, incarceration, right? The list goes on. And I remember, you know, 
at the point in the training where they said, you know, that the average heroin user has an ACEs score of four, I actually went off in the in the corner and cried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I've never used heroin. Yes. And I never will. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I've been to some dark and strange places in my life, but I have always had the instinct to stay yes. the hell away from intravenous yes. drugs. Um, and you know, but I just, I went off in the corner and cried because it was a lot, you know, to think like, you know, like the average, not, not that the average person with an ACEs score of four becomes a heroin addict. It's the other way around. The average heroin addict has an ACEs score of four. There are plenty of people with ACEs scores of nine who have never gone down that path, you know, and there's, thank God for free will, right? Um, that you, that we are not victims of our circumstances, but, you know, here in Portland, Oregon, where we have these very liberal policies and, and we're letting people suffer um, we're, we're allowing people to live in such agony and destroy yes. our streets and make our communities unsafe for everyone in the name of compassion. Like it's somehow compassionate to let people live this way. Yes. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop, where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations. All right, now back to the show. But, you know, I think I think the point is that, yes, it's useful to know something like the sure. role that, that aces play, right? That, like when you see an addict um, or someone who's incarcerated, that you're probably looking at someone who's been through some shit, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I understand what that feels like to have like a desperate craving for something to numb the pain. I've definitely been in that place before. I just haven't gone to heroin with it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes. But yes, I mean, it's... <laughs> You know, I, you know, I'll, no, I don't think I've shared this either on a, on a podcast, but I have done some interviews about this situation, which is separate. You know, my aunt was murdered by her husband, um, DV, but it actually, he didn't murder her. He hired someone to, it was a very sensationalized story all over the news for a long time. I did a couple of these investigation discovery, you know, ID TV stories on my aunt, right? There's about eight shows that have been made on her story. So sensationalized. Her children, you know, their chances of becoming addicts, killers, wife abusers, all of that, she's two boys, probably 90%. I don't, maybe 99. I mean, nine and a half out of 10, probably on the East of Sewer with what they witnessed. And they both didn't do that. And you know, you kind of look at them, and I've looked at them a lot from just a psycho, psych, you know, psycho, psychology-minded standpoint as their risk factors and why that would be. And then I thought about protective factors, what was around them that kind of helped them not become that. And it was not, you know, the, oh, gee, it's so horrible because, you know, your father was this person and horrible person who murdered your mother. It was a, you know, I don't want my mother's life and how long she survived raising us. I don't want it to have meant nothing for it to be that she ends and we turn out just like our dads. There was this conscious way of turning that around in some some fashion in a way that I admire. I mean, I admire them so much because their chances of getting out of this 
and not going to jail and not turning to drugs and anything like that was so small. But it was the way that they sort of said, well, it can't have been in vain and I cannot live a life that doesn't have meaning or provide or lead me to, you know, be able to do the things I love because then what would her life have mattered? So I've just talked on this show about these two very personal things that I haven't really shared that much about, well, publicly together, right? I've talked about them in separate contexts, but never in this context um, where I'm talking to somebody about the work I, I, I do. But when I look at those scenarios and, and what's happened, and what got us out um, of, of, you know, that, that being over-identifying with our history, over-identifying with what kept us oppressed. And I talked about my mom a bit and that idea of hope. That was the same for them too. It was this idea that, you know, we're here in the U.S. We don't have to be a number. We can take some steps toward becoming something else. And that for us was sort of a way of keeping, you know, her memory alive. And I think that, you know, it's, not that we had this magical, they don't have, they didn't have any magical skill set. They went to therapy afterwards and, you know, for a, a bit. And I think they had some good experiences there, but there was this overall way of thinking. This is what changed how they responded and what they would allow or not allow that to do to them. And I just, you know, it, it blows my mind every day that they could both become so successful having, you know, witness DV and then having that end in the way that it did and having it be so sensationalized all over the news and recognizable and people just knew who they were because of this story and, and all of that. And they turned out to be these just, you know, amazing kids and very close to that, the, the eldest one of the two. Um, and it's, you know, we talk about our mothers a lot when we're together still after all these many years that our moms died 20 years ago, both of us. Um, and it has to do, I think with, what they instilled in us. And they were both very similar in that regard. Um, so anyway, I'll just kind of leave that there. But that to me is just such a representation of not allowing the over-identifying with the oppressed part to be mm -hmm. your story, that they chose to write a different story for themselves, a different outcome. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. So, and and the word that comes to mind is determination. Yes. Right? That, that each individual soul has the sovereignty to find the determination. Yes. It doesn't mean you won't have obstacles. I mean, I, I've worked with people with such deep developmental mm -hmm. trauma that no matter how brilliant they are, there's are still layers of their brain. And I feel like I yes. have a little bit of that going on too, right? Like that's why, you know, you get into a fight with me after 930 at night, forget it. Like <laughs> it's, I, my prefrontal cortex is offline. You will That's encounter right. the deep recesses of my brain, which are deeply traumatized. That's why I try to go to bed, you know? Right. Like, of course, there, are, there is only so much you can do to control yes. the deepest layers yes. of your brain and developmental Definitely. trauma. But, but I do think that, develop, that um, determination and yes. sovereignty and, you know, the, the yes. strength of the individual spirit play a role. And I, I feel very fortunate as a therapist to have gotten to witness that in so many people, yes. that that determination to not pass on intergenerational trauma. Yes. That determination to not make the same mistakes your parents made. You'll, you'll make your own because nobody's perfect, right? Sure. But, um, but I just, I see that over and over again. I think it's such, and it's such a great point because I think that that's, 
The intergenerational trauma, I mean, in my family, obviously, you know, there's a lot of history of abuse from generation to generation, the beginning of time, all of my parents, both in their own homes and on and on. Um, but, you know, what are the choices that we made to have a different outcome, you know, versus even some of the people in my family who continued to sort of take that on and become victims, women become victims in their own home of their husbands, et cetera. That's hap you know, happened a great deal in my family on both sides uh, because that, you know, trauma has been handed down for generations and generations in my own culture, really, especially in a patriarchic patriarchal culture, you add to that, there's no real, yeah, they may look down upon like, you know, being abusive toward your partner, but there's not, a, it's a don't ask, don't tell policy. So you better just not really say anything. I don't think that's that different from a lot of what we see in DV in general. Um, but how, how did, you know, what were the differences between those of us that ended up in relationships that mirrored the same as our parents and those of us who didn't within my own family. And I think that determination, faith, hope, all of these things that are just, you know, their ideas, their viewpoints, their, you know, ways of operating, their organizing principles, internal organizing principles for ourselves. That's what the difference was, is that we chose to live by those and to make a different decision, to live with sovereignty, knowing that we can. And I think that, you know, that at the end of the day, I can look at statistics and numbers all day long, but the human reality of it in my viewpoint and in what I've seen and witnessed personally and professionally is that it's actually that determination and ownership of your life or of your choices that made the difference between somebody repeating and somebody that could see a pattern and say, I don't want that. And I was hurt by it. It doesn't mean that I have to continue to use that and own it as my identity. It can be the fabric, part of the quilt of my life and my historical experience, but it doesn't have to be who I am going forward. And that was the difference. And as simple and cliche as that might sound, it's it 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 the tr there's so much truth to it. And it could have turned out different for us, for you know, just how we grew up. It could have turned out very different. But we took more control and ownership. We did say, I think. Um, that's not what I want. It's not how I'm going to live. That was the answer that with the, just, it's a full stop right there. And just saying and that alone, powerful. That's the magic. That's, mm -hmm. that's the, it really is magical that we do not have to be condemned to repeat the past. Yes. And, and part of how psychotherapy can help with this is that, you know, one, one of the sort of basic principles on which most psychotherapy is founded is that thoughts, feelings, and actions get to have some space between them. That, that yes. just because you have a thought doesn't mean you have to act on it. Just because you have an emotion doesn't mean you have to act out that emotion in a particular way. Correct. Right? It's right. okay to have your feelings, but that also doesn't tell you what the facts of the situation are. Creating appropriate differentiation between thoughts, feelings, and actions gives you so much power because yes. you recognize that you can actually develop the ability to tolerate rage yes. or terror without yes. acting the yes. way that rage or terror would compel you to act. And when you develop, when you really get that, you become very powerful. Yes. And then you see that I don't have to wait until I'm in the mood to do something good for myself. Yes. That's, that's the tricky thinking that so many people fall into is thinking that, well, I don't feel like it. So therefore I can't. Yes. And that's where they get really stuck. Well, 
you know, I also didn't feel like doing my taxes this weekend, but I did it because I found the power of knowing. And I'm not going to say I don't have support systems that help me with that. But like when you realize that you actually don't have to feel like doing something in order to do it, then it's like, well, then that frees up so many things because you don't have to feel like exercising to exercise. Yes. yes. You don't have to feel like taking a shower yes. on a day that you're feeling really depressed to decide that you are yes. going to take care of your hygiene. Yes. You don't You don't have to feel like doing anything. And, and then you realize, well, I can actually base my actions off of what's good for me. Exactly. I can find that voice in me that knows. And I don't have to know everything. Yes. I don't know, have to know what the solution to my problems is. But if I have some basic principles like, I should probably eat some food now yes. or I haven't moved my body in three days. Yes. You know, start with the basics and watch your life get better yes. and watch yourself develop a sense of self yes. that is separate from your problems because and then you start to trust yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Feeling good about something because, you know, you don't have to just feel good because you, you know, achieve to go to graduate school and you feel great on your, your day of graduation. That's wonderful. It'll last for a few days, but that's it. You have to be able to feel good about these other kinds of goals that we set um, and not dismiss them as having been something that you achieved. I didn't feel like taking a shower and and doing some some taking care of my hygiene today, and I did it. So you know what? That's something to feel good about. I mean, just being able to acknowledge and recognize that you can feel good about these smaller goals. I mean, there's a lot of studies they've done about happiness where they, you know, and I can't quite think of one to cite right now, but generally speaking, if you kind of look this stuff up, the people that tend to have the most content or fulfillment are people that have reachable goals that are small or reachable daily, that they have daily goals and then they have kind of longer range goals. And the daily goals give quite a bit of um, you know, satisfaction or accomplishment that allow people to reach the bigger ones, but also just leave for some feelings of joy most days, even if that feeling or moment of joy is for five minutes of being able to say, you know, I went jogging even though I didn't want to, and I feel good about that for five minutes. And that's so important to be able to have some of those things. I mean, I used to use this with my addiction clients a lot. The, you know, a lot of the life isn't fair. There's this whole fair. And it's like, no, it's not. And I would use this because, you know, interestingly, where I used to, you know, I worked at a, one of the facilities, it's Malibu. And, you know, if everybody has heard about Malibu, California, which I'm sure everybody knows, it's sort of this Richie and the the, the uh, treatment centers there for addiction are super expensive. And you have all these people coming in with a ton of money that, you know, get what they want because of that. And they used to sit and complain a lot about fair. And no matter where, you know, I've worked at other ones that were for the county that didn't have people have didn't didn't have money. But the word fair came up everywhere around addiction, no matter what. And, you know, I would give them this story that, you know, I was leaving work one day and going through the canyons to get to my house. And, you know, there's areas where it's like one lane only. And there are all these cars behind me that are wanting to speed and I don't want to speed. So as I feel them closing in, I sort of speed a bit to move over. And then that's when I got stopped by the cop and I got the traffic ticket. And I sat there and told the cop, it's not fair. All the people behind me were making me want to speed. And I was just trying to move over to let them go. Well, it didn't matter that they didn't get a ticket. I did. So I had a few ways, you know, to handle that. I was either going to not show up and not pay the ticket because it was unfair, or I would try to fight it in courts. It was unfair. or I would just pay for it and say, I'm going to be a little bit more careful and pay attention because regardless of whether it was fair or not, it happened and I have to be responsible for it. And it's just a small example, but that's 
kind of this critical social justice lens, you could sort of tie it back to that. And that idea that these are the circumstances that are laid out for me because of the circumstances of my birth. And that's not fair, right? So because of that, I'm owed maybe something to be a little bit easier than not. And then you think, don't think about the 50 other times you sped and didn't get a ticket, right? right. So there's all these kinds of life, you know, kind of lessons, I guess, if you will, that are sort of built into that, that again, you know, to go back to this critical social justice, that that completely negates any of that responsibility. Um, it says it's not fair without telling you, but you have a responsibility. That's it's not fair. That's the full stop there. Without that other piece, what role do you play? And I think driving is a good analogy because, you know, you could have your external locus of control all day long. Yes. But when you're behind the wheel of a vehicle, other people are going to drive badly around you. That's yeah. something that you have no control over, but you have control over that hunk of steel that you're driving. And the consequences are so high when you're <laughs> behind the, the wheel you know, the chance that one wrong move could end your life. Um, knowing that that's the consequence, I think whips people in the shape so that they do take responsibility. The majority of drivers, yes. no matter how much they have an external locus of control with regard to other things in their life or pout over things not being fair, majority of drivers know that when push comes to shove, they're going to control their own vehicle safely, even if that means that some other guy gets away with driving badly and yep. that you get yep. held back and you're five minutes yep. late because you stopped at the light. Right. Um, yeah. Great analogy. Uh, you know, one, one other thing I want to say before we close is I, I found myself saying this to a few people recently, some version of this statement, your resistance to conflict mm -hmm. or your aversion to conflict or your, your fear of things being difficult does not make you special. It makes you human. It's, ah. it's universal. It's the default. No one wants to deal with hard things. Everyone yes. would rather the situation be yeah. easier, you know, whether it's that you can't tolerate ambiguity and you want all the answers now when they're not coming now, or yes. whether you don't want to stand up to someone in a difficult situation that really calls for it. Um, there's nothing special yes. <laughs> about you. Yes. And, and the special, this imaginarily special thing about you that's like, oh, I don't want to. It's scary. Yes. It's tough. Like, it doesn't, God's not listening to that. God's not like, oh, I'm sorry. You think this is too hard? Oh, never mind. Then, then yes. you get to opt out. Like, mm -hmm. life, uh, I'll just rewrite the rules of life and yep. of human existence yep. for you yep. so that you get a way out of this. Yep. But I love that you brought up God, because I think that's what's been lost in all of this, too. However, you know, that spiritual point, and I don't know about you, but I know most of the people that I've met in the profession that at least, you know, in the in academic sense are atheists. And I, I this is a whole nother topic for another day. But the belief that there's no spiritual or anything power that's bigger than this, and that it's almost like blasphemous in its own right to actually suggest that there is. So it's something that I feel like, you know, has that been part of the problem too, is we've lost God. I mean, again, that's another topic, but. Um, I might have to gather some of the most interesting people I've had on this show together <laughs> to have like a spiritual round table. Cause, um, and, yeah. and you're, you got to check out uh, 
Christine, I recommend to you and also to anyone who's listening who's actually made it to the end of this conversation. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation, by the way. And if you're interested in this topic, I definitely recommend the uh, episode with Amy Gallagher, which should be the one right before this one as the order they come out in Um, because we talk about matters of spirituality quite a bit. Um, right. And that's something I'm always interested in, in exploring further. I get a lot of flack for saying the G word, um, even I though <laughs> I'm, I'm about as broadly spiritual as you could possibly be. Yes. Um, but uh, but this is this has been great, Christine. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's let's so recap. Uh, yes. Where can people find you and all the stuff that Critical Therapy Antidote is doing? Yes. So criticaltherapyantidote.org. That's our website. And then directly, um, I'm not much involved in social media, but just C. Seifen, so that's C and then my last name, Seifen, S-E-F-E-I-N, at com. That's my email and probably the best way to reach me um, as well. And uh, yes, please definitely check out the website. There's so many amazing conversations and interviews you're on there to Stephanie and multiple interviews I think that you've done which is great I actually just looked up CTA's website right before this and I saw yes. like the first thing I saw was myself yeah my, uh, my testimony against Oregon House Bill yes. 2458 yes. yeah I was like oh it was, it was are- incredible I watched it I hope other oh, thank people you. did I sent it to my my uh, CTA pals. And so you got to check out what Stephanie did. This is amazing. So I'm glad it made it Thank up you. there. And, uh, We're going to have to, uh, to yes. get uh, Affirmation Generation up on that website too. Absolutely. Oh, it's incredible. Let me ask. So your website is christinecephanmft.com. When you said your social media handle, ccephan, is that on Twitter or Instagram? No, or? that's just my email, ccephan at, yes. Oh, I see. Mft.com. Yes. So you're not on Twitter or Instagram? I, no, I'm not. I have kind of a private profile on Getter, but I don't use it professionally. So I don't actually, I try to keep some anonymity on there because there's a lot of, um, it just some dangerous things that have happened to a few people I know for posting um, mm-hmm. things that were um, not, you know, lo- lo- politically liberally minded. And so I've tried to keep a bit of a, uh, anonymity when it comes to social media for that reason. Unfortunately, it's just kind of where, how we're living in California right now. Yeah. Got it. Yep. Well, I'm glad that you're speaking out in some forms. Yes. And so, and people can also find you at the new, uh, CTA podcast, critical therapy antidote podcast, yes. um, which will be on YouTube as well as audio platforms. Yes. And then, uh, you wrote a chapter in cynical therapies, perspectives on the anti-therapeutic nature of critical yes. social justice. Yes. Um, so I'll have to get those links end. and put yes. them in the show notes and put your Perfect. book on my website bookshop. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Yes. Thanks it's so such much. a pleasure to see you and to be with you. And thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. 
If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.